Today, today, by the way, is also Christ the King Sunday. This would be the Sunday when preachers would be talking about death, judgment, resurrection, eternal life. And, and I love talking about that, I guess because it's getting so much I'm getting so much closer to it now than I was 20 years ago. <laughs> But be that as it may, but it's also the week heading up into Thanksgiving, and, and I can't resist the pull of that. So today I want to talk about a sermon I, I, I call Trial by Blessing. Trial by Blessing. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would bless the reading, the hearing, the explaining, the understanding, the living out of your word. To your glory. In Christ's name we ask it. All God's people said? Amen. 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 Marva Wilson, Marva Wilson from Missouri, in 19, well, excuse me, in 2008, 2008, won a $2 million lottery jackpot. Within less than a year, she was scammed out of every dollar by a so-called family friend. Um, in 1998, John Roberts in Edinburgh won a four and a half million dollar jackpot. Three years later, he was broke and living in a mobile home. Peter Kyle won seven and a half million dollars in 2005. And three years later, he was broken on unemployment. Are you seeing a pattern here, by the way? In 2005, Keith Goff won $12.6 million. His life spiraled out of control. His wife left him. He became an alcoholic and died penniless of a heart attack all within five years. In the same way, David Lee Edwards won 27, 27 million dollars in 2002. Within four years, he'd spent everything. His wife left him. He died a pauper at, in 2013 at only 58 years old. Right here in Virginia, in 2002, 18 years ago, Jack Whitaker won $315 million. In five years, he, he took the, the lump sum payout, and after taxes and everything, he, he had $113 million. He had spent the whole thing in five years and was completely broke. These are the lucky ones. William Post won $16.2 million, and his brother tried to have him killed so he could inherit it.
when William did die of natural causes. However, after, although he won 16 million, when he did die, he owed over $1 million and was living on food stamps. Wow. Or the even worse, <coughs> excuse me, Ibi Roncaioli. She was a Canadian. And back in 1991, she won $5,000,000. That was, of course, worth more in 1991 than it is now. Okay? She gave her winnings to two sons from a previous relationship that up till then she'd kept secret. And so her physician husband learned about her past life or lives and enraged, he injected her with a lethal cocktail of drugs. Of course, he also did a lot of time in prison. Have you ever wished for a big lottery win to become another overnight millionaire? Have you ever done that? Personally, I, I don't play the lottery unless the jackpot's over 300 million. <laughs> and of course, I reassure myself I'm only buying lottery tickets, you know, to support education. Amen. <laughs> you know, we think if, if, if only we could suddenly have more money than we knew what to do with. Then our troubles would be over. We could enjoy life and maybe concentrate on the more important things in life. You know, faith, family, charity. Or so we tell ourselves. The re sad reality is, however, that Almost every overnight millionaire throws their money away until it's all spent. And they end up with more debts than dollars. You think, well, how could they, you know, how could they end up with so many debts? Well, foolish overspending. Credit cards. They will use their credit cards like crazy, with the emphasis on crazy really insane, use their credit cards because they just envision they have this, this incredible, unending supply of cash to pay it off, but they're spending it faster than they can pay it off. And then there's the interest that comes on there and so forth. You've got high property taxes that they forgot about on that expensive home they bought and so on. And the money is gone. And then, bit by bit, everything gets repossessed. And since they're, they quit their jobs, I mean, if you earn a million or five million or 300 million, who's got to, who needs to work anymore? But since they quit their jobs, they don't even have that income to fall back on anymore. Regardless, now I want you to notice, 
this is proven statistically, regardless how much they win, regardless how huge their jackpot is, seven out of every 10 lottery winners, seven out of every 10 lottery winners are broke within five years or less. And a third of them, one third of them, three out of every 10, end up having to file for bankruptcy. Wow. You see, you can win the lottery and still lose at life. There's a lot we wish for in life, wealth, health, family. You know, if we can only have this, this might be a thing, this might be a situation for us or a loved one, or if only we can keep that, then we tell ourselves we can be content. Once we get it, however, what happens? We get used to it, we take it for granted. And then our wishes move on down to the next thing on our list. You know, something else that if we could just get that too, would make our happiness complete. You see, the problem is contentment is elusive. It's constantly on the move. Happiness is a moving target. And it's never, you never have it permanently, ever. It's one reason the founders put in there that we, one of our, the rights that God has entrusted with us is not happiness. It's the pursuit of happiness. You're never guaranteed happiness, neither not by our, any of our founding documents, not by the word of God. You see, you know the saying, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. And that get it can be rather ominous. You might get it. These, those lottery winners, they got what they wished for, but it wasn't what they expected and they weren't up to the challenge of managing it wisely. Nothing is ever quite what it seems and everything has its conditions, its strings, its unforeseen impact, you know, what we call the law of unintended consequences. It always end, ends up costing you more than you expected. And sometimes it costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. After, after the Twin Towers, were destroyed by Muslim terrorists in 2001. A multi-million dollar fund was set up to aid the victims of the assault, the first responders, their survivors, and so on. 
or those who had been injured or who had lost loved ones or who had developed oh, post-traumatic stress disorder or cancer or COPD. And the uh, celebrity lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, was appointed to administer the fund. It completely changed his perspective on life. Dershowitz discovered that the tragedy had completely opposite effects on people. Half of them became bitter, rigid, angry. They turned their back on God. They, their marriages fall, fell apart. They suffered from depression. The other half became, oh, well, we might say philosophical. You know, seeing life in a different light, they consistently, they became more deeply religious. They were more prayerful. They were more caring and charitable, more involved in the community, reaching out to help others, more grateful for the little blessings of each day. The same experience but half went one way and half went the And it made Dershowitz, that experience made Dershowitz wonder, how would he respond? How would he respond if he were in the same situation? You know, would he himself become bitter or believing? And it changed his whole outlook on life. Now, Dershowitz's observation, hang on, hand, just hand me a couple of, couple of those things and we'll get set up here. back up. Hallelujah. All right. Thanks, Mark. Okay. 
Dershowitz's observation that, you know, in, in times of tragedy, half will become bitter and half will become more faithful and more believing, more charitable. It dovetails with what I've found in my own, in 30 years of ministry. I always say hardship either makes people hard or it makes them soft. Hard, when they become bitter and resentful, sure that they deserved way better than what life has actually dished out to them, or soft, when they turn to God for comfort, for hope, they become pliable and flexible in his hand, and they reach out to others in their time of, of need or pain. Now those who grow soft and pliable in God's hand are not without their disappointments or frustrations or struggles or anger. I mean, we all have to deal with that when we face hard times and trouble. I mean, the psalmist, in the book of Psalms, the psalmist wrestles with frustration, even despair over the setbacks of life. And he, at one point, he confesses to God, I was stupid and ignorant Lord, I was like a brute beast toward you. That's in Psalm 73. But each time when you read those Psalms and he's just pouring out his heart about all the things he's been, all the indignities he's had to suffer, there comes a point when that bitterness is voiced and that tumble of emotions is vetted then the psalmist returns to God with a sad, perhaps, but humble reliance upon his sustaining presence and grace. You kind of get it out, and then you can get your head straight again. That's okay. That's okay. You see, neither the tragedy nor the, the voicing of such savage pain or grief can compromise, let alone destroy, the fundamental faith which forms the bedrock of his personality and his relationship to God. Nothing ultimately can shake it. See, faith can be shaken, but it cannot be quashed. Consequently, I've come to where I do not think that hardship or tragedy actually makes someone hard or soft. I still say that because it's a whole lot, it's a nice rhetorical thing. You know, hard, hardship makes some people hard, makes some people soft. It doesn't really make what happens is it reveals, it reveals the fundamental character, the metal of a person. The embittered were simply waiting for something for, that would be a justifiable grievance. While the gentle believer is simply waiting for something that will trigger their latent faith 
and empathy. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's in there. It's just what, you've, what you experience is going to bring out who and what you are. See, life, life is not a reward. It's not a guarantee of happiness, a happiness that you deserve simply because you're here. And I hear that a lot of, oh, well, I deserve this, I deserve that, I deserve better. Who says so? What do you deserve? That would be a whole nother sermon. But let me just throw it in here anyway. <laughs> no, I'm gonna not going to preach a whole second sermon here. But, you know, there's this story about where Jesus says, well, you know, you heard about those people where the Tower of Siloam fell on them. And we don't know the details, but evidently there were some people that there was a tower that fell over and there were people killed when the tower fell on them. And Jesus said those people that the tower fell on, do you think they were any worse people than anyone else? He said, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You see, we don't deserve anything. Quite honestly, we don't deserve anything but wrath. Is there anyone here who's not a sinner? Do I have a show of hands? Hallelujah, I see no hands. Boy, would that have been, there are churches, there are congregations, if I went in there and asked that question, I would bet half the people there would raise their hand. No, we know how we stand before God. We don't deserve all kinds of good things simply because we're here, because we, we condescended to let ourselves be born. Uh, no, life is not a reward that you deserve. It is a test to reveal the true colors of your heart before God. The Hebrews, take the Hebrews, they didn't have much in captivity, but they did have you know, a basic place to live, kind of a shanty. They had basic food to eat, stew, but it came with a high price tag, their liberty. So they cried out to God for freedom, for deliverance. And in his good time, God sent a liberator to bring them out of bondage and across the Red Sea into the wilderness. They had their freedom. They had what they thought they wanted. But soon enough, they kind of went on down the list. It was something else. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, food, food. So God gave them daily bread for their daily needs. Oh, yeah, Lord, wait a minute, we need water. Okay, so he gave them springs flowing from the rocks. Oh, yeah, Lord, we need meat. We want meat. Bread's not enough. We want meat. So God sent them quail. 
And then, even with all of that, they thought, you know, it would have been better if we'd stayed in slavery because we, ha we weren't always on, you know, on the move. We had a place to live, and we had you know, the flesh pots of Egypt, which means flesh pot, by the way, is stew. They had stew. Okay, let's go. We want stew. They, had, they might be beaten and worked to death, but at least they died in their own shanty and with stew in their bellies. Now, it's not that they suffered want in the wilderness. God provided for their every need. But they did not want to be dependent upon an unseen God. They had wanted to be free, but discovered there was a catch. They had to trust and follow God, and he would provide. And faith was a price tag that many of them were not willing to pay. And so for 40 years, the Hebrews wander through the wilderness, waiting for that whole first faithless generation to die off. What remains, then, is a generation that was raised on the move, relying upon God for their sustenance, for their direction, a people molded to be a people of God. And now they're ready, now they're fit to enter the land of promise. But this, too, comes with its risks. Be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. And you'll find that it may not give you what you expected. So God warns them, they're on the edge of the wilderness, they're on the verge of getting what they had been hoping through, hoping for throughout these 40 years. And that, let's read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 10. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, a land with fine large cities that you did not build, houses filled with all sorts of goods that you did not fill, hewn cisterns that you did not hew, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you've eaten your fill, take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord your God you shall fear, him shall you serve, and by his name alone shall you swear. Do not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who are all around you, because the Lord your God, who is present with you, is a jealous God. The anger of the Lord your God would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you from the face of the earth. This whole passage is saturated intentionally with, well, covenant language. Covenant language. 
If it reminds you a little bit of the Ten Commandments, it's supposed to. You know the parts, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and so on. So we're supposed to consider this, how shall we say, a codicil to the Ten Commandments. So when you enter the promised land and receive a rich land and eat food you didn't grow and drink wine you didn't ferment and you live in houses that you didn't build and you drink from wells and cisterns you didn't dig, don't take it for granted and forget that it was God who gave it to you. Don't forget what God has done for you all these many years. Don't get caught up in a lavish lifestyle you have not known and don't be consumed by your newfound consumerism. America, don't be consumed by your own consumerism. Most importantly, don't assimilate into the culture around you. That a culture that does not know God simply because you want to keep up with the Kardashians excuse me, with the Canaanites. <laughs> Don't figure that you can have what they have if you live like they live and believe like they believe. Remember, this is a test. This is only a test. Trial by blessing. We usually speak of a trial by fire when someone's faith is tested in the crucible of, of grief or loss or hard times. We assume it must be easy to trust in God when everything's going well, but then it's hard to continue trusting in God when things turn against you, when you're tempted to become angry or bitter and turn your back on God. That's actually what the devil thinks as well in the book of Job. You know, just if you take your, Lord, if you take your protective hand off of Job and let him suffer a little bit, he'll turn his back on you. But as Dershowitz learned, it is true that some people become embittered against God in the face of tragedy, but others cling all the more to him and find their solace and comfort in their faith and in their God. You see, as a general rule, it is not hard to trust in God in hard times. When you have no place else to turn, where else are you going to turn to? It is not hard to
to trust in God in hard times. And at the same time, it's not automatically easy to trust in God in good times. Not necessarily. Pain and loss, yes, reveal the condition of a person's heart. It doesn't make them turn away. It simply exposes whether or not they really did rely on God all along. This is a test to see what you're made of. And yet blessing brings its own trials. When you get what, your wish, what you wish for, that reveals something about your character as well. Will you accept it as an unearned, undeserved, fortuitous gift and use it wisely? You know, with integrity and wisdom and personal values like generosity and charity, prudence, moderation. What kind of priorities will it reveal in you? Can and will you continue to rely upon your God when everything seems to be going well and you don't seem to need him as much or rather need him as obviously? I've noticed that most people who abandon their faith, their faith in God, because of, quote-unquote, all the suffering in the world, tend to be people who, by and large, are not suffering all that much. From their position of plenty and overconfident self-sufficiency, they presume to pass judgment on the superfluousness, the unnecessity of faith in a providential God. Oh, if, if I don't need God when life is good, then surely I really don't need God when life is hard. That's their thinking. It's the arrogance of privileged plenty. Now, if you did not grow up facing hardship, we grew up, when I, when I grew up, <clears throat> my father was a Presbyterian minister at a time when, when, as I like to say, we got paid in chickens. Okay, it wasn't chickens, but it might as well have been. We did not earn much. And my mother was a stay-at-home mother and homekeeper, home, homemaker. She considered that a ministry to have a hospitable, hospitable home where church members could come and groups could come and meet. And we had to get by on very little, and then my father died of pancreatic cancer when I, right at, shortly after I turned seven. And then it was really hard. My, uh, my sister was horrified the year that she took home act Y'all, many of you ladies here remember when you, uh, for a while, in some places, used to be required. Was it required up here to take home ec? 
Anyway, they were, they were in Home Act, they were doing a, a chapter on budgeting, and she discovered that, that we were living below the national poverty level. And we didn't know it. We were happy. I'm glad, in retrospect, I'm glad we grew up with hardship. Because if you grow up without hardship, you don't know how to handle it when it does come, and it is going to come. It just always does, sooner or later. You don't know what to do with it when, when hardship comes or when loss comes. Children who grew up with plenty will tend to take it for granted because that's all they know. I mean, you can't fault them. That's what they know. They take it for granted and are perhaps at the greatest risk for abandoning the Lord when they do face tough times, when they're quarantined, when businesses are failing, when jobs are scarce, and the folks won't foot the bill indefinitely. I'm not hearing any laughter on that one. See, if I grow up with it, it's all I know, and I assume I deserve everything I want or need, when I want it. And if I don't get it, I'll tend to grow bitter. And then I figure it's God's job. It is society's job. It's maybe the government's job to take over the role of being the all-protective mother, mother hen when my parents bow out. After all, I deserve it. You see, privilege leads to entitlement, then to desire, to envy, and finally to bitterness. The roots of an unmaintainable socialism, just saying. I spent a lot of time behind the Iron Curtain, and I saw where it came from. I paint a rather bleak picture here to illustrate the variety of ways that we might respond when we were faced either with loss and deprivation or with plenty and overabundance. And the conditions might appear to us to be completely opposite, and yet the human response can be practically identical, which only shows that all of life is a test to reveal what you're made of, both the bad and the good, and the good. Would you say that all of life is a test? Please say it with me. All, all of life is a test. a test. And one day when we stand before God, you knew it's Christ the King, so I'd get around to this anyway. When we stand before <laughs> the throne of God and have to give account, we'll simply be seeing what our life had testified about who we are and what we're made of and what we're living for and who we're living for. It's all being revealed in how we face 
the bad and the good, because all of life is a test. And one day, when we stand before the throne, we will get our grades. As we pause to give thanks to God for all that he's given us, we remember that America is a land unusually blessed with resources and a heritage of political rights and freedoms. This is unique in the world. Like the Hebrews in the promised land, you and I are just as much at risk of taking these things for granted. We forget how to temper our wants to ensure our needs until every momentary want seems to be no less necessary. My, my mother had a, little, had a little saying she would, she would quote from time to time with a chuckle. There, there, little luxury, don't you cry. You'll be a necessity by and by. If, if we can only have this, or if we can get that, we can, at least this time, be happy for the rest of our lives. And we have a right to happiness, don't we? We deserve what we desire. And like the Hebrews, we're just as much at risk of assimilating into the pagan culture of our time. Obsessed as it is with, oh, with money, with sex, with extravagance, you know, and, and we're being pulled, tugged to worship at the altar of some kind of ism, whether it's capitalism or socialism or utilitarianism or whatever. Every ideology can take on a life of its own and become an idol from whom we suppose all blessings must flow. We can worship and serve at the altar of self. You know, self-reliance, self-determination, self-gratification. Woe to us when we forget to be reliant upon the God who let us live here and enjoy these things in the first place. We forget how to believe, how to pray, how to depend upon a higher, greater, and wiser power. We face our trial by blessing and fail the test. You want to look back on your life, and the best you can say was, C minus. Sorry, Jesus. D plus. But it, there was a plus. You know, Jesus had everything there in the heavenly places. But he let it go. He gave it up to take on human form and become a servant, a servant to his own 
rebelling creatures. And at the last, we took from him the last things he still had. His robe. His dignity. And then his very life. But he let it all go. He let it go, trusting in the goodness and dependability of his heavenly Father. And God honored that faith and accepted that sacrifice, and Jesus was raised into a new resurrection life, the first of many to come, and he was exalted to be Redeemer Savior and Lord of all creation. And so this year, as Thanksgiving comes upon us, take stock of what you have and how you got it. Where did it really come from? How easy would it be to lose it all? And where have you seen the grace of God in the events of your life? How much is the Lord worth to you? It's about priorities. And if you, if you won that lottery jackpot, how much would it change you? And how would it change you? Would you trust God for your daily bread anyway? Would you freely share with the needy? And if you lost everything, everything tomorrow, if you lost everything but Jesus, could you still be content? You see, real contentment, as our lottery winners and losers remind us, real contentment does not come in the abundance of our possessions, but in the relationships that give our lives richness and meaning, beginning with the relationship with an almighty God. who des He's the one who deserves. He deserves to be in first place. So be, be careful what you wish for, unless you happen to be wishing for more of God. Let's pray. Lord, we who have so much, who have received so much undeservedly from your hand, express to you our thanks and our gratitude and our praise for your grace and your covenant mercies. We thank you we have not received what we really deserve. Instead, we have received kindness, compassion, and joy none of which we've earned or ever can earn, but simply through your covenant faithfulness and your graciousness towards us.
and we thank you. And help us to use who we are and what we have to be a light, maybe not a great beacon, but at least a little flashlight for others to point them toward hope and faith and gratitude through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.